follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash CFRC. Want to see what CFRC is up to? Follow us on Instagram for photo updates of events and happenings in and around the station. Search CFRC 101.9 FM on Instagram. You're listening to Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. This is Queen's University's International Affairs Radio Show, produced by members of the Queen's International Affairs Association. Today's episode focuses on women in politics. But before we introduce today's guests, we'd like to share with you some campus perspectives. We asked Queen students, are you a feminist? And we invite you to draw your own conclusions about what their answers reveal about feminism and the perception of feminists and women in society. Do you consider yourself a feminist? Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Were you hesitant in your answer? A little bit, and probably, like, I don't exactly, like, protest things or I'm actively involved, but I definitely have feminist views, I would say. Okay, um, would you say you believe in gender equality? Yes, definitely. So where do you think that that idea that all feminists are protesters or radical comes from? Definitely the media. (laughs) Do you consider yourself a feminist? Uh, No. So explain that. Only because, yeah, there's just so much, like, stigma around being feminist, and it's like people have a very sad idea in their head of what feminists believe in, and I certainly don't believe in all of those things, so... I wouldn't call myself feminist. Do you consider yourself a feminist? What feminism stands for, I would say I would consider myself a feminist. Um, My issue is more so with with the word feminism, uh, because I think that by calling it feminism, it implies an inequality in itself, in the word itself. Uh, Because we don't call it masculinism, that would be definitely a huge problem. Um, so I think more of a, I would, I would prefer it to be called a more gender neutral term, but I absolutely believe in like equality and equity for both, for, for both sexes and genders. Yeah. So I guess my other big issue with it is that I think that so far the literature in feminism has been very much dictated from a Western perspective. Um, and I think that while obviously there, patriarchy exists in Western culture as well, I think feminism doesn't acknowledge some of the patriarchy that exists elsewhere, and I think that that patriarchy is just, it's not even comparable in how much worse it is. And like, being from an Indian background, like some of the patriarchy that I've seen or like experienced and witnessed, it's just like, it's so obscenely worse that for me, like, like feminism is obviously a great thing, um, and like the issues of gender inequality are different in uh, Canada as a whole, but the patriarch, like the cultural patriarchy that I guess you could say immigrants bring, still exists. And so for me, like it could be anything from as small as you know, like your your grandmother crying tears of sorrow when you're born because you're a female, all the way to like being killed because you were born a female. So I think like that, it's such a more extreme perspective. Um, and having like witnessed things like that, I, I just think that feminism needs to expand its literature and its, um, its research beyond just Western issues or beyond looking at non-Western issues from a Western perspective. Even in Canada, we've got so many different cultures that you can't 
like, label every kind of um, female or women's issue as being one type of issue because there's such a broad range of issues. Like, again, I know a lot of people say that the best way for women to gain equality is by... Um, branching out into like jobs that break the gender rules, so things like engineering, etc. But for me, it's not about like the job that you're working. It's more so about the choices and options that you have, and that you have the equal opportunity of like choice, and you have equal um, options, and having that ability to choose what you want to do without being judged for it, without having barriers in place. That for me is more uh, a sense of equality. Are you a feminist? Yes. Did you feel yourself hesitating when you said that, or did you feel pretty prepared to say yes? I hesitated. So why did you hesitate? Because there's a really bad connotation with being a feminist. Like, that's kind of what we're... we're... So what do you think are those bad connotations, and, like, where do they come from? Um, I guess the media, and that we're, like, that if you're a feminist, you're really radical, and you're, like, against equality, almost. It's funny that you say that because in our interview with Maureen McTeer, one of the things that she said is that like the most basic tenet of feminism is, is gender equality, but it's maybe perhaps being contorted into something. Something else. DJ, are you a feminist? No. Why? Because I disagree with the term feminism. Okay, explain. Feminism implies that uh, it's about one gender, the female gender, whatever. That's my personal opinion on it. I think I agree with equality. I disagree with the label feminist. So what would you replace as that label? I wouldn't. I don't like labels. Labels are bad. Do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes, I do. Explain. Okay. Um, I believe I'm a feminist because I believe, like, not even just being um, a girl myself, but just being a human being, I feel like um, equality amongst any type of gender, any kind of person um, is necessary, and I believe that. I would call myself feminist just because I believe in those rights of equality um, of all humans. Do you consider yourself a feminist? Definitely. Can you explain Um, Feminist in a sense that um, I'm all for equal rights for everyone. Not in in like the extreme sense, but feminist is in um, I support equal rights for everyone. Are you a feminist? I honestly um, don't know how I would answer that just because I, like, I think there's like a stigma associated with like associating as a feminist and the assumption that everyone's just like a crazy, raging woman rights human being, but like, I think it's more than just women's rights and just human rights. Are you a feminist? Yeah, I am. So why are you? I probably would have answered this question differently before coming to university just because I associated feminism with being um, really radical and really... Um, not really against men, but uh, almost in some ways attacking them. Um, and I think uh, something I learned in university is that it's just focused more on gender equality rather than one uh, gender being better than another. Do you consider yourself a feminist? Classical feminist, not necessarily uh, the definition that has maybe has come to mean, but I mean in terms of equal rights, equal opportunity, everything like that, I am definitely a feminist. So what do you think feminism has come to mean then? Uh, I certainly think that um, certain people seem to turn things into antagonistic relationships when they don't have to be. Uh, And I feel that anybody who turns feminism into something that men have to be put down and men have to be attacked is someone who's looking at it a very wrong way. And and honestly, it's it's not going to be constructive for anybody, in my opinion. 
Do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes. So explain why you are. I consider myself a feminist because I believe in equality, uh, regardless of sex, sexual orientation, and I believe that while uh, feminism is obviously advocating primarily for females, that is necessary currently today because um, I think patriarchy still exists. I still believe that inequality between the sexes do exist. Um, I still believe gender oppression exists, even in um, contemporary uh, Canadian society due to wage inequalities, um, the role of women, etc. We spoke to Maureen McTeer for this episode of Right of Reply. McTeer is the accomplished wife of former Prime Minister of Canada, Joe Clark. She spent years in the public eye, inciting controversy when she kept her maiden name and decided to pursue her own career. She is a strong-minded feminist, lawyer, author, activist, mother, and she was a parliamentary candidate. She speaks to what it means to be a woman in an era of mixed messages. Many of my friends think that talking about gender inequality in Canada is ridiculous. They don't think it exists anymore or that it is a problem. But in politics especially, the numbers speak otherwise. Only 24% of our Canadian federal parliament is female. Janine Kreber, speaking on a panel at McGill about women's representation in politics, located the problem within Canadian society. She said, Canadian society is not organized to accept women in politics. Given your experiences, do you agree with, or how would you modify this statement? Well, thank you, Emily. It's, um, it's always a surprise uh, to see that uh, people don't uh, take seriously uh, the issue of equality and the need to always be aware that um, change is still needed. Uh, I think if you look at the report by the World Economic Forum last year, you'll see that uh, we only rank 20th in the annual global ranking of gender equality, um, where, um, where in terms of uh, politics, we've had, um, you know, gone down rather than, than up. And if you look at the statistics in particular, you see that we're 35th in the world in terms of wage equality in terms of women and men and the distance that women still have to go in order to be paid not only um, equal value for equal work, but equal value for the same work. And uh, we're 41st in terms of women in parliament and 35th in terms of women in ministerial positions. So um, uh, to my view, and I think to the view of certainly most of the world, Canada still has a lot of work to do. I guess the more interesting question is why uh, young women in particularly deliberately choose to close their eyes to uh, these inequalities. Of course, um, perhaps your colleagues are you know, sufficiently wealthy and sufficiently uh, intelligent and able to get into one of the best universities in the country, and uh, you know, that's perhaps why somehow they think, uh, looking at the stark and... Um, specific statistics of the number of young women in professional schools compared to when I started out in 1973, that um, we've come a long way. And certainly we have in that one particular category. But in terms of um, real equality, in terms of uh, the opportunity to uh, advance in our careers, be they be in trades or be they be in uh, in the professions, uh, whether we are able as uh, women with children to be able to continue on and have uh, an equal opportunity with uh, men who um, who are often in relationships and have children, although that doesn't seem to matter so much uh, in terms of their careers. 
I think we have those questions that we need to uh, address and ask. And I actually want to congratulate you for raising subjects like this and continuing to put your hand up when people uh, are concerned about issues of equality in the Canadian society. Thank you. And I mean, I think of the sexist attacks, you know, focused at the former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard just last year when she was in office. And clearly there's sort of this, you know, sexist environment within Australian politics. I'm just wondering, does the same kind of environment exist for women in politics in Canada from your experiences? Well, I'd like to think that they don't. Uh, When I ran for Parliament, which was years ago, I remember... uh, my opponent, or one of my opponents, um, who eventually won, who had been a municipal councillor involved in um, in charge, I think, of sewers. But um, he had, uh, at one of our all-candidates meetings, made it uh, quite, uh, made a quite startling uh, comment. Uh, I don't know if it's because we were in a rural community at the time and he thought somehow he'd have backing but um, he said, if, you're, um, if you were one of the most powerful men in the country, would you allow your wife to run for parliament? Meaning, of course, my husband and myself. And um, there were boos from the audience. And I was um, quite, I was, first of all, surprised at him for doing that, but also um, very delighted that uh, to, a, to almost to a person, there was a feeling in the audience that that was a completely... Uh, uh, inappropriate uh, chauvinistic comments that had no place in a uh, all candidates meeting. So whether or not there are not there are specific instances where women are insulted, um, certainly it's more difficult just logistically to be a female candidate, especially if you have young children. Uh, but also, as I did when I ran for parliament, but also. Just, um, you know, there's always a comment about what dress you're wearing and how you've worn it four times already during the campaign and how your hair was looking a little disheveled and your nails were chipped. I mean, there there are those kinds of ongoing uh, questions which really are quite irrelevant, but uh, still are, uh, I know, all of the women candidates uh, are forced to face. I just have a a quick unprepared question. Do you think that that kind of fixation on women's, uh, the more frivolous their appearances and rather than ideas, is a reflection uh, kind of of society's fixation on sexuality in the media as a whole? Or is there some kind of strange, latent fear about women being in positions of power? Well, it may be both, but certainly uh, I think the Eurasia a hugely important societal issue, and that is uh, the sexualization of women from their youngest age. I mean, you have children basically sexualized in advertising and uh, media, uh, teenage women in particular, but I think it's probably a combination of both. I think the status quo is very powerful. When you look to see who controls media, who controls information flows, governments, professions who control, not numbers here, but control, you see that it's by and large not women. And uh, so those who are in positions of uh, both prominence and control will likely fight to the last person to ensure that uh, things don't change. And one way in which you can reduce the seriousness by which women are taken, uh, with which women are taken, is to basically... um, treat them as not serious, treat them as 
objects of sex, objects of um, ridicule, uh, victims uh, capable or, or um, in need of uh, controlling, in need of violence. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which uh, not just women, but certainly we're talking about women here, can be kept in their place. I know that um, International Women's Day just last weekend focused on the topic of ending violence against women. Um, Do you have any comments, perhaps, how this might relate to politics in Canada, women in charge in Canada? Well, I'd I'd hesitate to make any kind of direct link, but certainly there is... um, there seems to be less action, especially with respect to Aboriginal women uh, and you know women who are um, victimized to begin with, either because of their race or their color. Um, so those those kinds of situations, I think, uh, are not being handled with as much seriousness or as quickly as they uh, should be, and I think could be by uh, those who have the power to do that, and that can be any level of government really. Um, the, um, I shouldn't say it's ironic, but it's encouraging that uh, so many of the police forces in uh, Canada, uh, led often by men, have actually uh, made violence against women in the domestic setting such a priority and have specially trained uh, constables and ways and processes by which uh, such violence can be handled and uh, where women can be and children can, in such situations, can be better handled, better cared for, if you will. Um, I think the the legal system has tried, uh, in its own way, to look at that, along with the judiciary, to see how we can remove from the court system, the direct court system as we know it, find other ways in which uh, children and uh, women can be treated, either if there's been sexual abuse or violence against them in, in a domestic or a societal setting. so But certainly, you know, if there is a connection, I think it's that governments can and should be doing more. I'm glad that you uh, brought up the issue of Aboriginal women. The murder of Loretta Saunders has precipitated a lot of discussion about murdered and missing Aboriginal women in Canada. What do you think about the uh, recent parliamentary report that does not recommend a national public inquiry on ending violence against Indigenous women? Well, obviously it's disappointing. I'm not sure why, they, it, why, that, was, why that was recommended. There seemed to be a suggestion somehow that enough was already being done when all evidence points to the contrary. Um, I think uh, First Nations women, Aboriginal women, uh, generally are trying among themselves and their professionals and their various organizations across the country to not just uh, raise public awareness, but to also work with police forces, work with um, ban governments to try to um, look at these in a more serious way because um, it is, to me, a national disgrace that uh, Aboriginal women are so... Uh, in in, such, in, the, in the current situation that they are, especially with respect to uh, to violence, to to, uh, to murder, to abuse, um, and of course there are many many other factors that play into this: the issue of drugs, the issue of alcohol, prostitution, all of these kinds of um, uh, problems. Lack of education have to also be addressed simultaneously, and I think that that's where some kind of a national approach can actually uh, lead to more um, realistic and long-term solutions, because this isn't just a piecemeal um, issue or a small issue 
for which piecemeal approaches will uh, will help. This has to be addressed as a uh, a national issue, and it has to also be addressed by uh, those who are closest to these actual situations, and that must mean Aboriginal women themselves who are in leadership roles within their communities. That kind of leads into the idea of empowering women. And feminism is kind of a broad ideology with many branches with the overarching goal of empowerment of women. That's how I see it. How do you define feminism and what and who do you think should consider themselves feminists? Well, I mean, I think you've you've uh, hit the nail on the head, really. I mean, the the whole idea of um, of feminism is based on the notion that uh, that equality of opportunity and uh, equality of rights and fairness are um, absolutely essential for modern democratic societies. And uh, our hope as feminists is that that's what we're working toward. A lot of, um, you know, there's all, as you say, many branches of of feminism, but, uh, you know, stripped down, the whole idea is that uh, we can have a society that's fairer, that uh, women will not be excluded from leadership roles, positions of power, of influence, of uh, decision-making in every single sphere, merely because of their gender. Um, so that's um, it's a tough, uh, tough journey that we're on. We've been on it for a long, long time, uh, and we're still on it. Uh, sometimes it feels a little discouraging. You, you go ahead a few inches and come back a foot, but uh, or centimeters to <laughs> meters. Um, you can see I'm dating myself here in terms of uh, metric, but um, I think that that your point is well taken. It is not. Uh, it's not really a fight against, among different branches of um, how you are equal or how you might be equal and who should be equal, but it's you know stripped down pretty pretty specific. How do we make a fairer and more equal society for women as well as for men? And that's uh, that's a societal challenge. That's not a challenge just for feminists or people who believe in equality. That is in fact a challenge for every single Canadian. What I find. Um kind of disappointing is the negative connotation surrounding the word and the ideology of feminism. For example, in my first year global development studies class two years ago, my prof asked the class how many of us considered ourselves feminists. And in this class of about 400, about 20 students raised their hands. Even today, I find my peers are reluctant to label themselves as feminists. In identifying as a feminist, as you put it, before it was fashionable, what challenges did you face? Well, it's interesting that your class was one in global development because if anyone should be uh, aware of the inequality between women and men, it should be in a global development course. Uh, but um, again, when I'm always a little uh, loath to say why younger people in particular, young women in particular, who are really the beneficiaries of uh, a lot of the, of, of the work that's gone before to achieve a measure of opportunity for them, uh, why they are reluctant to call themselves feminists. Maybe maybe as a movement, we've, uh, and individuals in a movement, we've um, offered contradictory um, presentations of what feminism is. Maybe we don't dress properly. You know, maybe we sound like uh, grumpy old women. Um, who knows? But um, I think it's, I think if, if, 
uh, if it's the word you don't like, the question then is, do you believe in equality and fairness uh, for women? And if the answer is uh, yes, then, you know, call yourself what you want. But historically, that means you're a feminist. But um, I don't like to get hung up on, on uh, words. I do think feminism is a powerful word. I think it's a, it is a powerful movement and historically has um, achieved great change for women in uh, modern societies. Certainly um, other um, cultural, religious uh, influences still hold us back. But uh, and some some women in some countries, as we well know, have very very few, if any, rights uh, in a legal sense, so or even in a social and cultural sense. So there's a lot of work left, uh, a lot of work left to do. And um, I'm really looking to your generation because um, most of us, after the charter, you know, decided, look, we've been battling for this now all of our youthful lives. Now we have to get on with our life. We'll, we have work. We'll provide money to the, quote, cause. But um, obviously that's not been enough, and uh, there's a need to, for us to refocus, to ask, for instance, how governments can come to power, and the first thing they do is remove uh, the child care, national child care program, which has taken us almost four to five decades to achieve. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there wasn't an uproar among working women, among women who, with uh, young children who wanted top-quality care. Why is it only one province in Canada has um, a universal daycare program that uh, is affordable for, for their families in that province? It's, these are all um, these are questions, you know, women's reproductive uh, needs, women's reproductive services, um, not available in some provinces frowned upon in others, not even offered in, uh, in some medical practices in Canada. We've, um, we do really need to um, be aware that just because today's okay doesn't mean that tomorrow will be, that we have to be uh, both vigilant and proactive in ensuring that uh, those gains that we've made are maintained and enhanced but that we move forward in areas of crucial importance to women, and I think um, child care is certainly one of those areas. It's. I just want to go back briefly to kind of what we talked about between the disjuncture uh, between the meanings of feminism and, you know, whether or not you're in favor of equality of the sexes, because I, too, at Queen's, have encountered, and not just at Queen's, in society at large, I should say, um, have encountered kind of... Uh, Feminism, the word, leaves people with kind of a bad taste in their mouth. Do we need to redefine the way we see equality as uh, perhaps with some kind of different terminology or to be more inclusive to men? Um, and the and stemming from that, it's also very problematic that such a word would leave people with a bad taste in their mouth. Well, look, when you're trying to change the status quo, call yourself what you will, you won't be popular. So I think that um, there's that kind of core element to the definition of any word that um, is seeking to have a fundamental shift in society. And we should be clear, achieving equality for women in Canadian or any society will put out a very large number of noses and challenge a huge and well-entrenched status quo, be that economic, be that professional, be that political. So... Uh, we can change it and call it uh, anything you want, uh, 
But as long as you're part of a movement whose goal is a fairer society and fundamental change, you're going to have uh, resistance and you're going to have um, groups who are well served by the status quo. Uh, pretty darn sure that they're going to be portraying you and uh, and anyone who supports you uh, through a negative eye. That's just reality. I know many men who are feminists and are very pleased to say they're feminists. They support um, the women in their lives, in, and they work hard for social, economic, political change. So it's not just a movement of women. It's also, I think, uh, very important that we realize that feminism, just like any movement that's seeking change, will have sub subspecialties or subgroups. And some of those make people uncomfortable. We've been through an era of, um, of uh, fundamental change in how families are defined, in how relationships are defined, how marriage is defined. We have same-sex relationships, which, doesn't, which are not uh, either appealing or approved of by uh, many people, many religions, uh, who, who are, which are, who are and which are powerful forces in, in Canadian society. So you're going to um, always have this uh, pejorative attached to any ism that uh, happens to be fighting for something which uh, is so fundamental and so dramatic as uh, what women's equality will be in a Canadian or any society for that matter. Emily just has a question, but this is just kind of a caveat. It's so crazy that that's dramatic, but... <laughs> I mean, no, it's should... not really. I mean, look, how, well, look how long it took yeah. for women to be recognized as uh, having an independent status other than their uh, daughter of their father or their spouse. You know, we still have societies. I mean, until 1898, uh, women, when they married, became one person, and that person was the man. They could not hold land in their own. That's why the person's case was interesting, not because women were declared persons, because it forced a major institution in Canadian society, the Senate, to amend its act so that you didn't have to have $6,000 worth of real estate in order to be considered as a member for the Senate. And so you had until the 40s in some parts of Canada where women couldn't even vote and so, you know, why are we surprised that less than or just, you know, slightly more than one generation later, we have not achieved equality? But on the other hand, we have moved forward. And if we work together, we will continue to move forward. Sensitization of people to injustice, no matter what that injustice is, inequality of opportunity, of economic uh, ability of educational opportunity of healthcare access these are all things worth striving for but they require work and they often put you on the wrong side of power and it's very very easy to go with the flow because that's where most of us like to be none of us like controversy none of us like confrontation but the reality is if you're going to have real change that's an inevitable part of the process towards that change. You mentioned health 
Um, a lot of your recent work involves women's health. I find it interesting that coming from a political background, you choose to work in this area. How do you see women's health in Canada as political, and why is it important to have female leaders in this field? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't come from a political background. I come from a legal background, and I come from a women's rights background. So it's almost inevitable that uh, health would form a great part of that concern for equality and for um, access and safe, full care for women. My interest in health came uh, in 1989 when I was uh, named one of um, named to Canada's Royal Commission on New Reproductive Technologies. To that point, I had uh, practiced general uh, law, insurance law mainly, and uh, certain you know, pro bono type human rights type cases. However, in uh, at that point, when I joined the Royal Commission, I found it was uh, both fascinating in terms of reproductive technologies and the things that were happening, but also that I needed to know more. So that's when I went back and did a master's in health law at Dalhousie's Health Law Institute. And uh, from there moved forward, always combining my interest in reproductive technologies, which obviously uh, have a huge impact on women's lives and women's health care but also then increasingly into issues of genetics and access to care and uh, patents on human um, gene sequences and human life generally. So those, that's kind of a, the kind of a thumbnail sketch of, of my interest in health. At the same time, as you both know, my spouse was involved in, at a senior level of, um, in international issues, and so uh, often had an opportunity to travel with him, and from that had an opportunity to see uh, women's health in a global sense, and uh, am currently the the uh, Canadian representative of the White Ribbon Alliance for Safe Motherhood, working to achieve Millennium Development Goal Number Five, and uh, with respect to maternal health and access to women's reproductive health, but also Number Four because uh, inevitably a health the health of the mother will have a huge impact on the health of the child. We've spoken about some of the challenges that women have faced in the past century and um, currently today. For example, most positions of power are occupied by men. The higher you move up in the ladder in the workplace, the fewer women they are. Um, Further, in many fields, when men and women do the same job, men get paid more. Um, On a closing note, what advice do you give young, ambitious women facing this reality? Well, just stand up. Stand up and be counted. Um, if, and, and I think companies have a responsibility as well to publish, uh, to be sure that young women and young men receive the same starting salary and uh, that they also receive opportunities to advance. Uh, there's, uh, there's no reason for them not to. Um, and I think the, the old idea that, you know, well, women might get married and have babies, you know, pregnancy and childbirth is not a terminal illness. It's, uh, it's an opportunity to, uh, f- for everyone, not just uh, an opportunity for uh, the family, for the parent. And I have uh, many people I know who, uh, as young women, started out in their law uh, practice and went with a firm and only discovered to their dismay that when they had their first or second child, they were basically on the mummy track and would have to wait a few more years before they would make partner and often in the same uh, law firm with their spouses 
who had, were not affected in any way, shape, or form in terms of the arrival of the child, as if somehow the responsibility was only the woman's and he was going to go on and make partner on time and she, because she, she had children, wasn't going to. So I think young women have to stand up. They have to stand up and say, no, I'm sorry, that's unacceptable. You have to use the laws that we've worked hard to pass to ensure that your rights are respected. And I think you have to work to enhance those laws and those rules and those practices so that it becomes the norm rather than the exception, that women excel, women move forward. And um, the economic argument is, uh, as you know, compelling. Uh, maybe we need to make the economic argument uh, more uh, directly and more adamantly than we have in the past, that in a society like uh, ours, where we need the best brains and the best education, people with the best education, the best uh, uh, possible uh, talents and skills and intelligence. We need those people to make our economy strong and to discriminate against women, either because they're women or because they're married or because they're mothers, uh, is a little bit like shooting yourself in the foot, that the Canadian uh, economy can't afford that, uh, even if there were no laws ensuring that it can't do that. We spoke to Professor Stephanie von Klacki, who is an assistant professor for international security in the Department of Political Studies here at Queen's University. She is also the founder of the Canadian Chapter of Women in International Security. Anne-Marie Slaughter's piece, Why Women Can't Have It mm-hmm. All, Lauren was saying that it seems so significant because she wrote it after she left a position of power, not yes. before she did. And perhaps had she not written it as she was at the stage that she is in her life as she is now, it wouldn't have come across as effective. Yes. I think it's important to create safe spaces for women to have those types of discussions at every stage in their career. And that's where uh, important networks like women and international security come in. Uh, So my experience as a a professor specializing in security, and before that as a grad student specializing in international security, uh, is an experience that I know has been shared by a lot of my colleagues is that you come into a room participating at a conference presenting your research for the first time and the gender balance is, or lack thereof, is immediately (laughs) apparent, right? You're in the minority, uh, usually you're the only woman on the panel and it changes depending on your area of focus. So for instance, uh, when I was doing work on nuclear weapons, Definitely, I, I, I was usually the only woman in the room or on the panel. Uh, when uh, now I'm, I'm doing a little more work on military culture, uh, then you know the, the, the difference is less apparent because part of studying mil- military culture is studying the gender role um, and, and the participation of women in combat and in the military. But uh, definitely. Uh, networks like women in international security, what they provide for women who either specialize in security and defense or work as academics or professionals in the security and defense field where they tend to be minorities, is to provide that safe space to have these discussions about work-life balance, to have these discussions about experience that they might have had in a professional environment where they felt uncomfortable or they felt like they weren't respected. I mean, Henry Slaughter argues you can have it all, you just can't have it all at once. I mean, as a successful woman juggling career and family, do you agree with this? 
Yes, uh, 10 years ago, I remember I participated to my first symposium in Washington, organized by women in international security. Now that was the, the DC chapter at the headquarters. And they used to run this, uh, this symposium where they would invite 30 junior level scholars and graduate students from all over the world to take part in five days of seminars where they would present their research and they would take part in mentorship and skill building exercises, which I thought was a fantastic idea. But the message then was really, you can have it all. You don't have to com compromise on anything. You can have a wonderful career. Uh, you know, you can really pursue uh, your ambitions to the fullest extent uh, and have a happy marriage and have a big and healthy family uh, and uh, have green grass. Really, there was no limit to what you could achieve. And I really felt empowered at the time. But as I got a bit older and started to think about having a family, I realized that something had to give because either you can have it all and you can have a mental breakdown <laughs> in the process of getting it, uh, or you can still try to have it all and then you pay for all the help uh, that you need and, and you do need a lot of help. Uh, or you know you can take a more balanced approach to your professional and personal goals and try to negotiate the division of labor within your family unit in a way that's really honest and in a way that you don't feel disadvantaged by. So let me say something about this, because uh, certainly, A, we live in a country where the state doesn't dictate who takes the time off. Uh, at least the policy is open for uh, the mother and the father, or the parents, uh, in my case it's um, mother and father, uh, to um, decide how they're going to divide up the parental leave depending on where they are in their um, in their in their professional development and to have that freedom I think is really important um, for for the couple uh, for the parents and that's in stark contrast to the experience I had in Switzerland while I was living there uh, because although I didn't end up staying there uh, and, and having my um, second child there um, I was pregnant in, in Switzerland um, during my contract there, and it became quickly apparent that the policy was the mother gets four months and the father gets two days, and there's no <laughs> latitude there uh, in terms of um, uh, in terms of deciding that uh, within your family unit. That's a policy that's. It leaves very little flexibility, and I, and I found that quite um, quite difficult to fathom. And so, thinking back on what I had in Canada for uh, after the birth of my first child, where I decided to take a very short um, parental leave, and my um, and my husband took the bulk of the parental leave because that was a critical moment in my career, and I really was focused on. Um, on, on, on uh, getting my dissertation published as a, as a book and, and finding that first academic job. And for me, uh, you know, that's where my, my head was at. And although I did take several months off with my, my child, at one point I really felt the urge to, uh, to dive back in 
and, and really uh, pursue that those professional ambitions. And uh, we had the policies in Canada that allowed us the flexibility to do that. And this also happened to be a time where for my husband, it was possible for him to take that time off. Because as a lawyer, I'll have to say, uh, it's not always, it's, it's frowned upon to take several yeah. months of parental leave. And it's not something that's necessarily valued for either males or females. But I would say that there's, um, it, it's particularly the case for, for the males. And so when the Anne-Marie Slaughter piece says that, you know, navigating through these difficult points in in your relationship or in building your family and reconciling you know family with with work that work life balance she keeps referring to um, we need to have a conversation that includes men because uh, they've been socialized in in, in a world where uh, the caring roles um, are, are less valued and that are associated with, with females and not with males. And so by uh, putting equal value uh, on both the caring roles and the breadwinning roles, uh, then there isn't so much tension uh, when you have to share these tasks um, and, and, and take a, a bigger share of the burden in one or the other at various points. Uh, in, in your professional career and in, in the family life. That brings me perfectly to something <laughs> that Emily's daughter said in her way. <laughs> yeah. um, she argued that ultimately it's society that must change, coming to value choices to put family ahead of work just as much as those to put work ahead of family. If we really valued those choices, we would value the people who make them. If we valued the people who make them, we would do everything possible to hire and retain them. If we did everything possible to allow them to combine work and family equally over time, then the choices would get a lot easier. Going off what you were just saying, and um, I guess that little vignette from her piece, what can be done to make the societal change that she calls for? I think it's dialogue. It's doing mm -hmm. things like she's doing. <laughs> and uh, putting the word out there and including males in the discussion. Now, that's something that I think WISE, that's women in international security, can uh, certainly improve upon because our gatherings tend to be predominantly female and uh, we're making greater strides in terms of including more uh, men in our, in our discussions and in our programming. Uh, so I think that's definitely something that women's organizations are, are realizing over time, or certainly I can speak to WISE. Uh, so definitely I think that that awareness uh, is important. And I think that uh, setting um, that, that model when you're in a position of, uh, of job security, when, when you have achieved what it is that you wanted to achieve professionally and when you feel secure in your position, then I feel that you do have a responsibility to younger generations of, of men and women to share some of the struggles that you've encountered uh, in, in your professional life and your personal life. Sometimes that's that's very difficult to do. And, and so I think that dialogue is definitely uh, an important aspect. Um, another aspect, of course, is uh, you know, the policies, the parental leave policies and affording people with that flexibility. Uh, that's crucial in the United States is still something that they don't have. It's something that um, Anne-Marie Slaughter advocates for three months for men, three months for women. I think she says in one of her pieces that we're fortunate that we have you know, that whole year 
to take, which gives you uh, a lot of time uh, to to bond uh, as a new family, which is really important. Uh, and it certainly um, doesn't compromise uh, your chances of staying in your current employment. That is, we at least I didn't feel like taking parental leave would compromise my uh, my career. Uh, so I'm very fortunate to be able to say that. And I chose a career also that uh, has an incredible level of flexibility. Uh, so being a professor, you have your, your teaching hours, your office hours, and, and you're judged based on your outputs and your results, how much you publish. Uh, if you're doing a good job at, at teaching and you do have some administrative duties, uh, but it's not uh, a, a job where you're expected to be there at all costs from 9 to 5. We work, I think, a lot more than 9 to 5 in a day. We have an incredible amount of work. Uh, but, you know, if I choose to do that work after my kids are sleeping from, from 8 to 10 uh, because I needed to pick them up earlier because uh, one of the kids was sick, it's not a huge professional stress that I'm dealing with. I can just go ahead and do that. So providing some flexibility in the workday I think makes it easier for, for certainly uh, young families uh, that are trying to reconcile that work-life balance. The other thing is the, the child care, so the accessibility mm, yeah. of child care uh, is very important. Um, it's something that they've done quite well in Quebec where it's financially accessible. Uh, but it's not accessible in that there are waiting lists for you know several years, depending on the neighborhood you live in. So I think that the idea is is good uh, because uh, it really allows both men and women to um, get back to work without uh, without taking a huge financial burden. Uh, but at the same time, it's not perfected because it's not accessible to, to everyone. So there's some lessons to be drawn from that case, but success is, is uneven at best. How do you define feminism then? So for me, it's you're concerned with social inequalities that affect women. I think I would define it in that way, uh, and that's both domestically and internationally. And you could be an advocate or just concerned about it. To me, um, that's what feminism is. And I think that because uh, feminism implies the word female in it, a lot of males, a lot of men hesitate to identify themselves as feminists. And so now we're, we're focusing a lot more on, on, on gender as a way to bring everyone to the table and um, you know, talking about gender being socially constructed and unpacking uh, the gender stereotypes as they've been um, you know, historically created and, and reinforced. Uh, so maybe that's a, a way to be more inclusive, uh, you know, to talk about women, girls, men, and boys rather than just focusing on women. So that's a way that the discourse has shifted uh, a lot that maybe uh, won't intimidate uh, men as much because I think there's, there is still some resistance for, for males to self-identify as, as feminists. One thing I, I do recognize, though, is uh, uh, I was listening to the debates in, in Quebec politics. There's a provincial election, and there's a party that self-identifies as a feminist party. 
it's Quebec Solidaire, and I thought that was really interesting because um, it's not a, a party by any means that um, is uh, targets women uh, necessarily. Yeah. It's really uh, made as a you know broad appeal uh, party, although they're very marginal. They only have uh, a couple of seats, um, but I thought it was interesting for for a party in Quebec to self-identify as, as feminist, and they really define it in that broader. Um, in that broader way of defining feminism, which is really a concern with social inequalities disproportionately affecting women. And these inequalities are even greater when you combine the identity of being a woman with, let's say, the, ident the identity of a minority or an immigrant or a lesbian or an aboriginal. Uh, these inequalities tend to, to pile on to one another. So I think it's, it's good for parties like Quebec Solidar to bring awareness to these issues and to bring back it, bring it back into the mainstream political discourse. This is a party now that's taking part in the debates, and I found that quite refreshing this time around to uh, to have a, a party self-identify as feminist, environmentalist, uh, all kinds of uh, of um, labels. Um, traditionally associated with, with the left, but that's coming into the mainstream through this provincial political debate. Interesting. It kind of brings time talking about provincial government. I know there's been a recent influx of women premiers. Do you think that will go federal? Do you think that has, I guess, any implications for women going into leadership positions in the future and perhaps those policies you were talking about earlier to change to be more beneficial for women? So I'm not sure if I would uh, jump on the wave of enthusiasm just quite yet, because if we look at the aggregate data on female political participation, uh, especially at the senior levels and you know, on boards of CEOs, uh, the trends are not improving exponentially. I think there is some improvement, and it's certainly... Um, you know, if we look at Scandinavian countries, they seem to be doing maybe a bit better than we are. Uh, but the but the trends aren't. Uh, the improvement isn't happening at a pace that's satisfactory. Where we would, you know, very soon be approaching the 50/50 or the the you know real equality between uh, the sexes in politics. Um, the projections, I think, take us to. Um, 2058 in terms of when we can expect that uh, equal representation between uh, women and men. So um, a, a lot more work needs to be done in order to figure out what, how to um, do better when it comes to the gender gap by looking at that mid-level point in a woman's career when we tend to lose a lot of the women. Uh, because at the senior level, it's definitely a, a minority, uh, but at the very junior level and in colleges, and look around, uh, you know, it's it's pretty equal representation of, of males and females, and, and females tend to uh, have a you know, they graduate in a higher proportion, uh, more university degrees amongst females. So if something happens between that point and the senior level that we really need to to carefully analyze. Yeah, it seems like the current system of launching women from uh, the classroom to a career in, say, international security is kind of underperforming. What do you think, is there anything at the structural level that prevents women from making this launch? Well, the fact that the majority of uh, international relations faculty is male might have something to do with it. I certainly... I certainly think that there's a lot of improvement. Uh, the year that I was hired, there were um, 
seven or eight positions in IR available, and the majority of them were filled by, by women. So I think that you will see uh, generational shifts. Um, so certainly um, I'm very happy to be part of, of that shift, uh, and I'm certainly going to do uh, my part in you know, working through organizations like WISE to make sure that um, women who are in international security feel like they uh, they can make it, <laughs> uh, because especially since the, uh, the the economic crisis, there are very few jobs in academia, tenure track jobs in academia to begin with, uh, and then you know fewer jobs in, in international relations, and then you know, fewer jobs for someone specializing in international security. So uh, it's you got to wait for that opportunity to come up, and so when um, when it does come up, you you really want to do a good job and, and you know, excel in the interview process. And I think there, uh, women who have been successful can you know, mentor younger generations in terms of being prepared, knowing what to expect, um, and, and that's how we can, um, I think, best help the younger generation. And I've certainly benefited from, from some of that um, advice from senior level colleagues through the WISE network, uh, the Women in International Security Network, or by seeking it out, not knowing what to expect. Uh, so I think that's, uh, I, I sought out that help also because I'd been told to do so uh, in, in WISE uh, seminars and, and, and the like. I think sometimes we're, we're afraid to ask for that help. We think, yeah, I can do it on my own, but uh, the thing is you can really benefit from uh, the successes and failures of the of the people that went ahead of you. What does WISE do? So we do different things. Uh, Women in, inter in International Security has different international chapters. The um, headquarters is in, in Washington. Uh, and then I started the WISE chapter uh, in Canada in oh, wow. 2008. Uh, so we're in our seventh year now. And uh, there's several components to what we do. The first one is promoting the work and the research that's done by women in the security and defense field. So that means uh, sending through a network recent publications, re recent achievements, uh, so that we're aware of what the field of women in international security is like. Uh, the second one is uh, creating links between different generations of, of women so that uh, we have that support system, the junior, mid-level, uh, and the senior level, of course, uh, playing a large part in, in supporting mid-level and junior level women. Uh, so we, we achieve that through, uh, in Canada at least, annual workshops. Uh, so the next one is coming up at the end of May, from May 29th to 30th. And that's an annual workshop uh, that's held in a different city every year where we have research panels, we have skill building um, workshops, and uh, we also have uh, what we call mentoring lunches where we pair our student participants with uh, senior level women in the field that they're interested in working in so that they can ask all the questions, they can get some feedback on the CVs, uh, and uh, they can know what to expect uh, in that particular field as they start interviewing or as they launch a career in that field. Uh, and then uh, something else that the uh, network provides uh, is um, 
these international connections because WISE is a global network. Uh, it's very useful when you're in the security and defense field, which is a very international field, to develop contacts internationally. So uh, not only does the workshop include international participants, but the actual WISE uh, network is a network with uh, you know, over 5,000 members in, in uh, a lot of countries <laughs> around the world. Uh, and so particular chapters that are, are, are really strong is the, the Germany chapter, uh, the, the chapter in Switzerland, the chapter in Israel. Uh, so connecting with these chapters uh, is, is really helpful either from the point of view of professional networking or from the point of view of, of sharing the research. I think where WISE needs to improve is in making those links with um, uh, organizations in, in Africa and in Asia. I think there the, the reach of the organization is a little more limited. Uh, and I hope that through better funding we're able to um, engage um, by having more uh, participants from Asia and Africa to our workshops or vice versa. You know, funding is also an issue for us to, uh, to travel over there and, and engage on a more local level with our counterparts there. So um, that's what WISE does. I recently read that they're a catering company responsible for serving food to leaders and delegates attending the Nuclear Security Summit in The Hague just a week or so ago made a decision that no women were to be working in the plenary room where the main talks were being held. Uh, with reference to this decision, the director of the catering company said, if 20 gentlemen are serving and three platinum blonde ladies, it spoils the image. Now, I know that this isn't the same thing as a woman working in that room in international security, but it really made me think about this image and culture of international security as a man's world, and the man's world extending to even the staff of the catering company serving these male leaders. Um, can you comment on the significance of the image of international security as a man's world and maybe challenges you face as a woman being a part of it? I have the perfect illustration, and I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> This is the proper venue for it, but I'm, I'm glad to share it. So I shared um, with uh, my class, 364, uh, and I'm sure Lauren uh, remembers that story, but uh, there was a, a reception at a conference that I attended where I was wearing my name tag as a professor from Queens. I was dressed like everyone else in the room, business suit. Uh, and we were having a post-conference reception and uh, having some wine. And three times during the evening, I was asked to fill uh, a glass of wine for, for men in attendance, uh, as though it was part of the catering crew. Uh, and so, yes, I am a blonde woman, <laughs> but people shouldn't assume that I'm with the catering crew, right? And uh, that really struck me and made me angry at the time, and after the third request, probably I should have left earlier, but after the third request, I was, I was tired of chewing people out about this, and, and I just left. And to this day, this, um, this uh, incident uh, puzzles me a little bit, because uh, I don't know what the solution is, is for that. Uh, uh, I think a lot of it will will change as women like me have, uh, uh, are better or more greatly represented in, in settings like that one, which was a predominantly white male of a certain generation setting. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's that's really silly uh, that that 
decision and how it was justified uh, was really silly. And when I read that, I, I, I feel upset. I feel upset because I think back to, uh, to these stereotypes and uh, how I've been judged unfairly in the past uh, in, in these types of contexts. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I do think that's unfortunate. This is something that I'm quite interested in because, as you know, I'm very interested in international security and going into it. So just after everything that I have read in preparation for this and just what we've talked about, it can seem a bit daunting to have the thought of going into a career as this. So what advice would you give to someone such as myself who would want to pursue a career in international security? Join wise, <laughs> first of all, and second of all, uh, I think the way I've approached it so far is thinking that in most of these settings, I'm, I'm sometimes the minority. I think that you can uh, use that to your advantage, and that uh, you can gain the attention. Uh, sometimes um, uh, me the media, for instance, will seek you out because you're one of the only voices in. Uh, international security, for instance. So that was my experience last week uh, when I was approached by CBC. I asked them why they wanted to interview me. And they said, well, you're one of the only women in Canada uh, who's a professor in international security. And I thought, well, okay, maybe they don't know the market that well because there are others. Uh, but I thought, well, what an interesting way to think about it. Uh, I can use that to my advantage and, and to gain that platform uh, and, and to show that there are strong um, females in the field uh, who are professionally confident and who are able to take that microphone. So uh, I think that uh, I'm, I'm going to seek those opportunities out uh, from now on because I, I realize that that can be turned into a strength, professional strength. You are listening to Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM, Queen's University's International Affairs Radio Show. The proceeding were interviews with Maureen McTeer, who spent years in the public eye as the wife of former Prime Minister Joe Clark and the first Prime Minister's wife to have kept her maiden name. Miss McTeer is also a lawyer and a Canadian public figure in her own right, and we are thrilled to have her on the show today. We also spoke to Queen's Professor of International Security, Stephanie Von Lackey, about her experiences in the security realm as a woman. The Queen's International Affairs Association has been wrapping up its year, but we do have two more episodes of Right of Reply coming up on April 16th and April 30th. You can check us out online at www.rightofreply.podomatic.com. Thank you for listening.